0: This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for a second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. Hi, I'm Cameron McCormick. I want to welcome you to the Earn Your Edge podcast. By passion and by practice, we at Altus are driven to decode the difference makers that higher performers possess. The ways and means they use to earn their edge, to create separation from the mass, to leave mediocrity in their rearview mirror, and travel this pathway to mastery. Be it through nature or nurture or a mixture of both, the journey to uncover these things is a journey that we're on. And joining us in this episode of the podcast is George Yankus. He's coached to many of the world's best golfers, those that play on the PGA Tour and those that are soon to be Tour players. He likely needs no introduction to the golf world, especially if you're tuned to the many social channels he dominates. However, given our audience covers a wide gamut of demographic and interest, I think it's important that we cover the territory of background with a few questions. Now, the way I like to describe George, or for those in the know, call him Gigi, is he's authentic. He's an original, he's a creator, he's a person who lives in no one's shadow, who forges his own path and above all else makes sure he's enjoying it. There are many threads I'd like to pull on, as I know there's much that we can learn from, from, from him. And possibly the most important question comes out of a, an Insta story pre-Christmas. Are you ready for it, George? Yeah, absolutely. Can you dance better than your wife?
1: <laughs> absolutely oh
0: no way mate oh that <laughs> oh, ruined <my> me
1: <laughs> she's pretty good but i'll light she's her up damn though. good oh my
0: gosh you posted that i'm like oh i'm gonna have to get my wife some <laughs> golf, some, some dance lessons mate <laughs> i love
1: it i love it what did you see her dance absolutely you posted that from the christmas party the christmas gig and you oh, were just you were just chilling right. on the side she is pretty good. Yeah. maybe she might. She's probably better. I shouldn't say I'm better. <laughs> <laughs> and I love to dance. It's fun.
0: I love it too. I love I love it as well. That's how I met my wife. We we met dancing at a club in Lubbock, Texas, back in what was it? Nineteen gosh, ninety seven, maybe nineteen ninety six. Wow. Way back, brother. That's how you guys honestly met dancing. <laughs> yeah, we were we were at a, a nightclub in Lubbock, Texas, and um, we were both on the same dance floor and turned around, kind of bumped into each other, and the rest is history. Oh, that's
1: cool. I didn't have an idea. That's super cool. Yeah.
0: Enough about me though. Okay. First question, (laughs) an alter ego question. So clearly we
1: know you're a golf coach, but if you weren't a golf coach, what would you be? You know, that's a great question. I'd probably be a teacher because everybody in my family is a teacher. I originally, like I said, I, I love golf. I was in almost every sport there was. And for some reason I started golf late and you know what? I just, you know, i never made it on tour, so I wasn't good enough. So for some reason I got stuck in in teaching in golf, but I think my passion is just watching people get better at what they do Mm -hmm. and enjoying their, you know, their satisfaction of hitting a, uh, you know, a golf ball better. So whatever it would be, I would probably fall into being a coach or a teacher or some sort. My dad's a coach, everybody in my family, my mom's a, a, you know, English professor, my grandparents were both teachers. So, I I just come from a, a long family of, of coaches and I didn't want to be a coach to be honest. I want to be a player. But if it wasn't up to golf, I would say somehow, some way I probably would have been a teacher or a coach for sure. Yeah. And something else.
0: What does dad coach?
1: My dad coached football. Okay. He was a football coach and a volleyball coach. So I grew up around sports. And yeah, absolutely. I I, I just I mean, as you do, we like seeing people improve and we like to see, you know, the reactions when they when they get better it's just it's satisfying it's satisfying for sure
0: yeah and and so did you play football growing up and then segue into golf or were you just like spreading you know your- i was a
1: wrestler I, I was a volleyball player and a wrestler which is a, a pretty odd combo yeah but um i started wrestling my uh sophomore year i was a pretty solid wrestler and you know what i just i didn't like golf <laughs> i my, my dad tried to get me in golf all through high school and i just i just didn't like it i like contact sports and, you know, a, a summer came along and my, my dad said, hey, let's go play some golf. And I'm like, I went out and played. And I was so bad when I was like 18 that he's like, you're probably the worst golfer I've ever seen. He said, <laughs> it, it, "He said, if you ever could, be, if you could ever beat me in golf, I'd throw my clubs in the lake and I'd actually quit. And I started laughing. I'm like, you're tripping. You're on, following, man. Following year, I beat him. It was, it took that, it was legit within a year. That I actually got pretty decent within like two years. I was a scratch player. So how, how did you he, do that? He motivated me. He just motivated me. I hit th- hun- thousands of balls. I worked on a range. Hit thousands of balls. Played every day. And and that really is the secret, as you know, is getting on the course, playing. It's not the golf swing. It's it's getting on the course and getting you know learning how to score.
0: Yeah, it's the calluses. It's the the blood <laughs> in uh, dripping from your hands after the five hundred or thousand ball days, and you're, you're 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 dead right.
1: Is that how you got into it too? Did you play like as a kid or what?
0: Well, I was the same as you. My dad played professional Australian rules football. It's that sport where once you kick a goal, once you score, they hold up those two arms in front and kind of point their fingers out at the field. And um that's how I wanted to, that's the sport I wanted to play. And all the way up until I was 16 years old, I had visions of playing professional Aussie rules football and You know, I developed late, and uh, the rest of the kids around me at my high school were growing up and getting stronger, and I was staying the same. And so I was like, exit stage left, pulled the ripcord, and got into golf. My uncle was a golfer; he was um, a pretty decent golfer, and my dad uh, played maybe once a year. And I was, um, I was, I was ate up with, and I did exactly what you did. I got really good really quick because I realized I was running a race that. I was so far behind the players that were around in Australia when I was growing up or starting to play golf were Stuart Appleby, Robert Allenby, and Jeff Ogilvie, And I was so far behind those guys. I, I was playing catch up. And when you're running a race from behind, you're running it the fastest and possibly the most intelligent way you can you can run it, which is advice from every possible Everyone. source. Yeah. So
1: absolutely. Yeah. Watching films. Reading every book, watching every player, asking questions—it's incredible. That's cool. Right on. I have no idea who were the players that you were around then growing up. Um, you know what? That's funny you say that. I wasn't around big time players. I was around like um, Tom Stankowski, Paul Stankowski, who was on the uh, was on the PGA Tour. Sure. Um, I got to see those guys grow up. Besides that, I really wasn't around a lot of legendary golfers growing up real early. I just, you know, I was around a lot of good golfers. I I was around a lot of guys that were plus fours, plus fives who can really, you know, score. And I just, you know, the way I got good is just playing with better players and nobody wants to play with you when you suck. And when you get (laughs) good, it's the (laughs) truth. But once you start actually getting better, you start getting better games and then you just start picking people off. And that was kind of the goal for me but i didn't have any like legendary players around like like you did that sounds like when i was growing up i wish i did but um sure. now i now as we both get we get to be around a lot of legendary players so it's kind of cool and i hope to unpack a lot of that but before we even get there at some
0: point in time i went through this i guess come to jesus so to speak where i wasn't a good enough player to make cuts and make money i had to Choose coaching, or right? I decided to choose coaching is a better way to say it. I'm sure you probably face the same thing. That's,
1: that's kind of the way I went too.
0: Yeah, describe that for me if you can.
1: Yeah, I mean, the time I got done, I played college college golf. I got a scholarship. I played junior college two years because I was, I mean, I was so late into the game. And then I, I was a walk on, and then I got a scholarship after I walked on, made the team. And so once I actually played, I played college golf at, at, at a a college called Cal State Northridge, which isn't really that known, but we had some pretty solid players on the team. And when I actually graduated from there, I actually said, okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to play. I tried to play. I played a lot of, lot of golf, a lot of tournaments. And in the meantime, I was caddying at Sherwood Country Club, which you know where Sherwood Country Club is in, sure. in West Leather, or Thousand Oaks, I should say. And you know what? I just, in the meantime, I was, I was caddying and I was you know teaching you know members out there how to score, you how to play and, and I got a lot of good results. And not that I knew what I was doing, but I did know how to score. I knew how to get get the ball in the hole. So that helped a lot of people and a lot of and I got a lot of good feedback from people. And I enjoyed watching people get better, like I said. And that fed me into, okay, some members were going, Hey, can can you give me a lesson? I'm like, I can't get one on the range. You know, if you want to meet me over to course. And then the next thing you know, a lot of other kids and and guys, when I'd hit balls, were like, oh, you hit the ball good. Can you can you help me out? Yeah. So I just, you know, that's how I got into teaching is I kind of transitioned from caddying to playing to actually coaching. And it was kind of like a, it was a weird kind of transition in like 1999, 2000, uh, I started going from caddying back and forth from caddying to coaching, caddying coaching. And I had a couple good players, and this is good advice for people who are starting up at coaching. A good friend of mine, JT Kohut, which played at UCLA, and I said, you know what, I'll give you free lessons. And he got really good. He was already good when I met him, but he got even better. And, you know, when you get good players like that and you help them out for free, people go, Who's who are you, who's your coach? Who your I coach? Have. Who's your coach? And that helped my business. And so he kind of, if I was gonna give credit to somebody, he kind of launched me in a in the good direction to where I, you know, I was starting to get good players, good juniors. I was I was charging nothing back then. I was probably charging 50 bucks an hour and then it just grew. And yeah. it was, it's kind of the way it grew is that I started small. I started with a, a couple good players for free and that grew into, you know, being able to make some money teaching and doing what I like. Shifting to
0: your 2000, you've shifted from Cal, to the coach, you're giving away free lessons to a great player from UCLA. And that is your bell cow. That's the guy that's ringing the bell and saying, bringing other players in. And you're starting to develop your reputation, but at the same time, you're probably facing challenges that you, maybe through your own experience as a player, uh, can solve. But I liken it to an NFL coach that's sitting on the sideline with a massive play sheet in front of them. And there are many ways to skin a cat. There are many many ways to solve a specific problem. And you're having to fill up that couple or that that experience of being able to solve problems What were the strategies that you used to develop your skill set in the early years from, let's say, 2000 to 2008, 10? So a good 8 to 10 years of early coach development. What did you do?
1: You know what? I took players on the course more than anything. It was probably my favorite thing. I got so, so, so much, like, I don't know. I don't want to say love, but I got such good results that there were so many players that were coming to me for I want to get on the course with you. I want playing lessons. Mm-hmm. I want you to teach me how to score. It wasn't technique like today. Now people, I'm like a freak people that's come for me. I want to hit it far. I want it. I want to get shallow. I want to learn to rotate. I want this, 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 I want to learn your legwork. So it, it, it's, it's more like a freak show now to where it's like I get one player after another. It's not coaching anymore. It's tech. I'm like a technician now. And I really, my passions in coaching, yeah. my passions in getting people better at golf. And so in some players that I have, it's still coaching, but in some senses that for the first ten years, my results were coming from from drills, from day to day, making sure they're doing certain drills. Like I had a drill, like I'm sure you have a million of them, but I would do 30 to 70, and until a player could get a certain number, they couldn't they couldn't graduate really. Right. So I'd take a ball from 30 yards, 40, 50, 60, 70. And it was like a 10% rule. So at 30 yards, three feet, but it wasn't three feet, but it was just accumulation of all five balls from 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, until they were 25 feet, they couldn't leave. Mm-hmm. So they'd sit there on a front pin, mid- middle pin, and a back pin, and I'd make them go front, middle, back. And then once once we did that, we got graduated to that, we'd go 80 to, 80 to 120. We'd take a ball from 80, 90, 100, 110, 120. And then we'd mix up yardages in between And we do that like four or five days a week. So when I first started having so many good juniors, you know, back 10 years ago, that's how I first got on the map is from doing all those things, taking them on the course and actually starting like par threes behind trees. So let's say off the tee, it's a 400 yard hole. I'll I'll take them 150 on the left side of the fairway behind trees where they had to hook it around on the next hole. I take them on the right side of the fairway, 200 yards out. And so they play behind trees on every single hole and do weird stuff like that. And that's what we did. We did a lot of tuck in on the range. We'd miss one side of, of the fairway with the driver, just simple stuff that we all do now. But back then it was like different. Nobody that I knew was doing that. So it was just, it was things that that made my players really well prepared to play on the course with different yardages from top to bottom. Meaning, so I take an eight iron out and if a kid's max was 160, his minimum was 140. And so I'd say 160, 140, 155, 145, 150. And each ball would would have grids where you couldn't miss left or a tuck left pin or a tuck right pin. And we we'd do different games like that. So games for the first 10 years were probably my go-to. It wasn't so much technique as much as it was getting players better.
0: Yeah, brilliant. And I I have a series of questions here that I call them quick hits. Although you just answered the first one of those quick hit questions in a very elaborate and uh, descriptive way. And the first quick hit question is the importance of skills or style for a player that's developing. And I think what you just described that you got the greatest mileage out of working with players on skills and then kind of backdoored back into style to create the necessary function. Is that at all correct?
1: Absolutely. I think I mean I think that's what you're pretty well known for too. Am I right or wrong? Yeah, for sure. I mean that's that's where I came from. I I, I don't think I don't think there's any replacement for it. And I think that the golf's gone in a certain way the wrong way as far as technique, 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 technique. And I I, I don't think that's how you become a better player. I think that the best players in the world, as you'd know, would say, okay, I, I see my start line and I see my finish line. Um, they see visuals or they see start lines, and I, that I'm taking one side out mm-hmm. rather than okay, I'm going to get my arm in this position or I'm going to get my legs to do this or whatever it might be. Obviously, we can practice that on the range, but in general, what why people are good is because what they see their visual of of their ball shot or their shape of of the shot, or what I'm trying to say is basically. They're not technical at all. Most good players are not technical. I agree. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, 100%.
0: So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. let me shift to the next quick hitter. I was going to leave it till a little later, but I think it's a nice uh, kind of movement or segue into it. The importance of balls or brains, the importance of courage or intellect. Would you prioritize one over the other?
1: Oh, for sure. Having big balls is, is a mandatory.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you, you got to have courage. You've got to actually, you've got to, I mean, you've got to have no fear if you want to play this game.
0: At least at the, elite, at the elite level that you work at and that I've been working at for a, a good portion a of time, time right now. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Those, I mean, it's, it, you've got technicians, you got guys with brains and you got guys with big balls that just have no fear. And then you get combos of all three and, and you're unstoppable. But I'd say the first priority would be guys that have no fear. Absolutely.
0: The players, the best players that you've worked with, or maybe speak specifically to your current crop. What is it that... Maybe you've seen in them that has given them that courage, that that moxie, that um, that confidence to step up and just get it done. And, and what is it that you've actually that you could pinpoint that you've created or you've given them that, that amplifies or builds that confidence?
1: I think a lot of it's innate. I think a lot of kids. You know, some days we wake up and we're more insecure. Some days we we feel real confident about ourselves. But I think the players that are the best, I feel like. They always feel like no matter what, if they hit a bad shot off the first tee, they don't panic. They feel like they're very, very in control of their mind and of, of their body. And so they don't have a lot of fear. They have a lot of confidence. But more than anything, I think a lot of those players that I teach are okay with a lot of the outcomes. And and what I mean by that is is they're okay with hitting bad shots. They're okay with looking stupid. They're okay with being like not the coolest I think those are the players that are the best as far as I'm concerned. Players that can look stupid and just roll with it. And players that are, get easily embarrassed or, you know, easily flustered are the ones that you know have sometimes a lot of skill but they they just never play really good in tournaments. So those players that are okay with all the outcomes are usually the players that feel like are the best under pressure, are the best players regardless. Those are usually the players that are very very like Easily agitated. They they get frustrated real quick. They get pissed off real quick. But as soon as those players figure out that that will drive them to practice every day, but as soon as they get on the course and they get okay with all the outcomes, whether it's hitting an OB off the first tee, popping a shot, looking bad, as soon as those players accept that and they're cool with all the outcomes, those are the players that become the best, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, no, it's not only an opinion, it's it's a fact as far as if we can just. Use your experience and then I guess combine it with my experience. It's, it's an absolute fact. We talk a lot at Altus about mistake amnesia, which is essentially the tolerance of, I'm, I'm going to trip and fall. I'm going to get up and I'm going to dust myself off and, and, and get back to, um, to that task. Clearing the air. You've gone a long way. I think maybe in the last three or four years in, Coming to the fore in the coaching, I guess, arena in the public eye. And with that comes, as you very well know, and as I know, this conception and oftentimes the appearance or how people perceive you is not actually correct. And you've actually spoken already in this, um, in this podcast recording here about. You came from a place of being a skills first style, second coach, spending time on the golf course and helping your players develop this scoring ability and worked on style secondary to that. Are there any other misconceptions about you that we can uh, use this platform to clear the air on? You
1: know what? It's, it's That's a good question. I think that the, the biggest thing that a lot of players or people think is that I'm like a speed freak and all I care about is speed. <laughs> I'd, say, I'd say that's number one. I'd say that, you know, all I do is mechanics, mechanics are legwork. And so many people are surprised when they come to a lesson and, and I don't even touch their legs. They, they go, well, are you going to do anything with my legs? And I laugh and I'm like, people think that every lesson that I do, I'm going to squat and get you to turn. <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's kind of funny that, that a lot of the things that people think that, that I'm going to do before I get to a lesson is definitely, you know, misunderstood for sure. Besides that, you know, I would say what you see is what you get in a lot of ways. Right. With what you see when you come to get a lesson, yeah, I'll wear my flip flops. You know, I'll have my Bears jersey on at times, and, <laughs> and I like to mess around. But in general, speed wise, and 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 trying to smash every time, no, absolutely not. That's not all I do. Right on. But that would be the misconception. I'd say that right. I see in leg work. Besides that, I mean, but I do hear a lot of a lot a lot of weird stuff i i do know that a lot of players are afraid to work with me and i would say because i'm pretty different and i'm probably not your your local pro that does things you know i'm not really conforming to a, a, a lot of things so i think that probably a lot of a lot of players probably get nervous that i'm gonna do some weird stuff and get you crossed up cross the line get your foot up and and do weird stuff but I'm pretty simple when it comes to a lesson if you come and get one <laughs>
0: yeah well, one needs to only take a look at the last twenty posts on your Instagram or tap into the subscription or YouTube channels which will will which, which we'll put up the back end of this so people know how to get in touch with you to recognize the diverse spectrum of movements of swing styles that of the players that you teach and and those that you advocate for so glad we could clear that up. Okay, so moving on, no person experiences uh, success without experiencing the other side. The flip side of that is the failure, the mistakes that we make along the way. Is there a failure or or an apparent failure, we might call it, that uh, you've been through in your career that it was kind of a transitional or transformational type of experience, something that made you a better coach?
1: Uh, Yeah, there's been quite a few situations where I feel like I didn't do my job the best I could. One, I have a really good friend of mine, Darren Angel. When he came out of college, he actually got hurt, so he was off. He played at Arizona State. He was one of the best players in the country at the time. Took eight years off, started caddying, doing a lot of other stuff, started getting his game back, and he came to me and said, Hey, listen – if you can get me to stop hitting this hook, you're my coach. So it took about 10 minutes to stop him hooking it and it was on. So the whole year he started playing good. He started hitting it exactly the way he wanted. He got immediately, he almost got on the PGA. He got on the, uh, at the time, the nationwide and he played good for a year. And then he was on another year and he's like, let's make this better. Let's get my swing tighter. So we started messing with the swing and trying to make it look perfect when his ball flight was already good and there was no need to do that. It was more of his, his wedges that needed to get tighter. And we went off on something that we didn't need to go off to make him look better than, than he needed to. And, his ball striking struggled. That took about 6 months to figure out that we went the wrong way and then we went back to old videos and he started hitting it good again. So it was it was an eye opener for me that that you know ball flights all that really matters when you're playing on tour. It's not it's not so much, you know, what your swing looks like all the time. If you can create good start lines, good ball patterns, create one-way misses, and then, and then, really start detailing out what's important is is proximity to the hole with with the wedges and getting better ten feet and in and all the rest of the things. But um, that was a really big eye opener for me. Does that mean that
0: you, from that point forward, uh, change the way you approach? I guess the assessment phase, analyzing maybe the stats to confirm that the player has what they need in skills and direct attention to those skills that are. Are, are poor or, or weaknesses or?
1: Absolutely. I started paying more detail to, you know, stats, more detail to what was really important in someone's game, like getting better strategy, mental, just being a more well-rounded coach. Something that we talked about earlier about that, that is what I really enjoy doing is getting people better at golf. Not as, as now I'm, I'm kind of a freak. People come to me for different reasons. There's, or like i said before you know getting the shot the or getting to rotate or whatever it might be first and foremost i'm a coach and mm-hmm. and sometimes i lose touch with that when i'm sitting here with a player that comes to me for a certain reason with their golf swing and they're like oh i'm a good putter i'm a good wedger i'm good at everything i just want to work on my golf swing so that being said that's not really a coach to me it's more of a, a technician and and that's where a lot of times i'm directed as a coach yeah so yeah absolutely i like i like Like I said, I like coaching and finding out detail, but yeah, I made that mistake for sure. And I think we all have when, especially when a player starts going, I want to look like this or I want to get better. I want to look better. And sometimes we lose sight of what's really important.
0: Yeah. And that's a good transition into some questions that players may have, uh, as they're sitting in front of one of the best coaches in the world. And so I'm going to ask from the player's perspective, the questions to you in your time spending, um, I guess, coaching sessions with some of the best players that you coach, From your experience, what have you come to understand about what differentiates the good from the great and then the great to the world-class?
1: Great question. I think a lot of it's mindset. I think a lot of it is a belief that they are better than everybody. I think that's a really big thing.
0: Going back to the big
1: co Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I think that players that believe that they're better than they really are a lot of times become way more successful than I see a lot of players with a lot of talent that have no belief in themselves no confidence I and mean, they struggle and, and then i see players that have the knack to repeat i think that's a huge huge deal uh and that just means their brain's off They're automatic pilot and i think that matt wolf is probably the best i've ever seen at it and in, in, in my teaching and I've, I've taught guys who are you know major winners and i've never seen anybody repeat like matt wolf so and you know he hasn't Developed on the PGA Tour or anything yet, but he he most likely will be one of the better players in the world eventually. And so so looking at him and what does that mean to me is is when I ask him after he hits a hook or a bad shot what he thinks and he goes I don't think anything different. I just still see my ball pattern. I might take a different practice swing, but when I walk into the ball, there's no different thoughts over the ball. I never have a thought over the ball, and yeah. that's that's amazing to me. (laughs) And I said, even when you're practicing and he goes, no, I'll take a practice swing. If you say I got to start rotating, I'll rotate over the ball, rotate uh, another practice swing. And then I come in with a clear mind. He gets fully external, fully present. And then he zones in on his start line. And then he goes into like a haze. He goes into like, like a straight up, like he he has zero thoughts. That's brilliant. He goes into a zone. So it's pretty interesting in your experience spending so much time around him and say that is his
0: character trait or is that only the state that he goes into when he's playing, competing, or even practicing at golf?
1: I just don't think he has any technical thoughts over the ball. It's more shot patterns. Mm-hmm. You know, if we work on a mechanic or, or setup, he'll set up a way because usually he gets out on his toes too much, but that's also because he has two shorter clubs. But since he's played so well, we haven't changed them that – that, that's one of his biggest things is his setup. His next thing is his trigger is always consistent. It just gets him into, it's like a dance. It's a rhythm. It's a trigger. And then from there, he goes into blackout. It's, it's, it's really interesting. And even after he hits a bad shot, there is still no thinking going on over the ball.
0: Yeah, I guess I guess what I'm trying to pull on there is how does that come to be? Was he born with it? Does he demonstrate that same behavior? You know, it,
1: it's it's great that you say that because I I've never had a kid that's done the same thing. I feel like. I feel like consistency doesn't come from mechanics. I feel like we're all consistent. We just won't allow ourselves to be consistent. Hmm. And, and what I mean by that is if, if I hit a ball and shut my brain off, I could probably hit 10 in a row like that. I wouldn't like the results. So then we start fiddling with it, but his results are good. So he just keeps doing it. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So, so I think, and that's what I remember Nicholas saying. I, I mean, I don't want to quote something that he didn't say exactly, but from what, understand that that's what he'd do his first 10 balls is he'd hit and get a rhythm and whatever shot he hit he'd play it that day and i think that just goes to show that those are the players that are really consistent they're not trying to change things they they get a ball pattern and they repeat it Mm -hmm. and that means that they're really not their minds off i heard something the other day was really interesting too about ricky fowler he was he had a um a focus ban on and every time he got over putter he actually looked and went and hovered his putter and then it went green Hmm. And every time they put a focus band and every time he got over a a driver or an iron, it it didn't go green. So he's trying right now from, I I understand from my buddy, Josh Anderson, that he's trying to get in the green with everything. And it's, it's pretty interesting. And that's where Wolf is when he puts that on, on everything.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You speak to focus band there, which is a means to look underneath the hood, to look at the braid activity that's going on right there for the listeners out there. And it's a, uh, I guess, a, a frontier of investigation into golf performance that's uh, pretty pretty young, pretty green, to use the expression again, uh, the color reference, but yet it uh, holds some great benefit. And I don't have much knowledge in that area, but I'm um, probably like you in a mad scramble, try and fill up the knowledge bucket to understand how it can benefit the players that we're working with. So
1: I think that as we do that, I mean, listen, I, I tell a lot of players how to do it cuz I can get into the green and I can get into it right away and and what I do is I tell them to to clear their brain and get external which means they get into present state. I have them look out out in and in, into like the horizon. I have them look at a mountain or something and or the trees and I say look behind the trees, look behind the detail of the leaves and and then hear some sounds. And the next thing you know, they get really present. And then I say, after you've done that, I want you to get your eyes super focused on one thing, like a target or a tree or something and breathe in and get your eyes super heavy, like Tiger or Jason Day. Next thing you know, they're green. Yeah. Um, and so that works real well, but I tell some players to do that. They say they're doing it and they're really not and they're in the red. So we have some, some instant feedback with it.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a, there's a bit of a disconnect there. And I'll echo your sentiment that on the Ulta study tour that we went on that we will want you as part of next time. So you'll you'll have an invitation forthcoming when we put one of these together again. We went to Vegas and we were presented with um, medical grade EEG equipment by a, a group called Platypus Institute. And I had this headset on and John Graham had this headset on and we looked absolutely goofy, but yet we were trying to find the state that you were describing. And the only way I could, quote, unquote, get into the green was by spinning a ball underneath my f- my foot, like I'm just trying to create this backspin with my tennis shoe and the ball sitting on the ground going back and forth, or when I was spinning a pen between my fingers, which is just fully, like you say, external. But when I was holding a putter or holding a golf club, I couldn't get into that state. So,
1: so that's interesting. So your mm-hmm. focus was so on to the foot, just grinding the ball on the ground?
0: Exactly. Exactly. Wow, just, just that's like, interesting. Like, like a spinning top.
1: Yeah, you were just so focused on what you were doing. That's yeah, it, cool.
0: It, 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 was a, it was a trip. So back to practice. What's an area that you spend? You see players spending far too much time on? Uh,
1: just hitting balls aimlessly. I mean, I, I don't think that there's any detail in their practice. I think... They're they're just hitting balls, like beating balls, hitting a lot of balls. I, I think that they don't have – a lot of times they'll see a player just hitting a bunch of seven irons or a bunch of drivers with no pins, tuck pins, no distances in mind. I don't see anybody – I see if somebody hit like 50 balls from chipping or pitching. Uh, that's good to groove something, but I don't see it being game time. I don't see it being in a situation. I, I think that scattered practice like that, I think it should be a little bit more – Detailed like one ball to a different target to a different target with different yardages with different intermediate spots when you're chipping rather than one after another trying to get, you know, a feel. If you're working on mechanics, I'm absolutely okay with that. But I do see a lot of aimless practice where they're just beating drivers or or seven irons aimlessly without without any structure to it. Like you're playing on the golf course. No, no going through routines, no distances and no, no. No tuck pins, I think, is, is a big issue.
0: If you're talking with one of your players that can't get to the golf course to, I guess, go and play the game of golf or practice on the, on the field that they're going to try and compete on, what's your go-to drill, your go-to game or task that you're going to prescribe for them that brings the field Back to the practice arena back, back to the driving range
1: Oh, great question. A lot of times I'll try and simulate a golf course whether I take a driver out and say okay, you're gonna play you know a certain course that you're familiar with and go through the whole course, hit a driver, then hit it like let's say you got 170 and you got an eight iron tuck left pin and go through like you're actually playing going through a routine and making sure it's a timed routine over each shot. Have parameters for the driver that are very similar to being on the golf course would be a very simple way to go. If you're not doing that, I would say some of the things that I simulate would be, if I took out, let's say, an eight iron and your max on an eight iron is 170, I'd do a 20yard increment. So I would take the first ball, I'd have five balls 170, second ball 150, next ball 165, 155 and 150. And I'd say, you got a tuck left pin. And I'd make sure if you don't have a flight scope or a track man or something that registers your distance, just wing it the best you can. You can tell if you hit it pretty solid or not. And go to a tuck left pin and go 170 first ball, walk in like you're going to hit through your same routine, whether you take one practice swing or two, go through your routine, whether you breathe, whether you focus or visualize your shot with the tuck left pin and go in and hit it 170 and then have parameters there if you miss left i tell my players if it's a tuck left pin they miss it's minus two If they hit it with just right of it you get plus one which is good if you're still on the green right of the the center of the the green that's zero and if you miss right as a bailout you miss minus one so that's one of the biggest games that i play with my players and so if they do it they're the you know they get one point for being in in, within their grid and they get one point for being within the yardage but if you don't have a something a flight scope or or a track man or something of that sort you can't Mm -hmm. tell your distances so that, that being said, I just do parameters. Nice. Um, so I'll do 170, then I'll have them walk in at 150, then 165, and 155, and 150, and make sure they don't cross on any of the pins. Um, and they can play, play games like that. They can do tucked right. They can do back pins. They can do front pins and make sure they're covering. Stuff like that simulates. Also, at the end of my driving range, I have five different driving range pulls you can go five grids, one on the right, and then another another grid that's about 15 yards wide. And they try and hit in between each one of those. And what I make them do is, is they're going to miss on one side. So if they miss, they have to miss. If I say the first two grids or the first grid with two poles on each side, they go, okay, I'm going to miss this one to the left. If I miss so they'll start up the right and turn it off, and they'll never miss on the wrong side. So I make them feel like like they can miss a certain way, but but they're not, and they're and they're not going to miss on the wrong side. Another thing that I'll get them to do to simulate is I'll 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 have I'll tell them to pick a driving uh, like a, a fairway, imaginary fairway, and I'll put a stick up on the right side and they have to start it right and every ball has to either stay straight or turn to the left of the stick but it never starts left it starts right and turns left and that that opens up the fairway for a lot of players and then i'll do it if they want to hit a cut on the left side and really get them to create a ball pattern i think those are some really good games for people to get ready if we're talking ball striking alone.
0: Absolutely. Those are brilliant.
1: If we're doing wedges and stuff like that, I, I, I'd say wedges are, or you could do games like that or putting. I've got a lot of different games I play with those too.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. We'll cover those maybe in a part two because I want to move on. And I think you may have already touched on the answer to the next question. And if so, we can just move to the next question. But nonetheless, I'll ask you, where does pressure come from? If you're speaking about the pressure that your players talk about experiencing, And how do you help them or they help themselves deal with it when they're teeing it up in the biggest events?
1: Great question. I I just, I I make them understand that they have to be okay with all the outcomes. You know, if as soon as they're okay with the outcomes, as soon as they're okay with looking stupid, as soon as they're okay with their ego being damaged, as soon as they're okay with shooting a big number, they're not going to have any fear. I think that's the biggest thing is where our ego gets damaged and and there's fear and then there's pressure and all the stuff we put on that everybody's watching, everybody's going to look at our scores. And I think that as soon as you can get a player to be okay with the outcomes of failure, of playing well, of Trying to have to impress, um, trying to to see if their their you know their score is going to be in the paper or post and everybody's going to see it. If they're okay with with those outcomes, if they're okay with topping it off the first tee or okay with hitting it out of bounds off the first tee, then there is no fear. But I think a lot of people are not okay with the outcomes. They're not okay with looking stupid. They're not okay with hitting it out of bounds. They're not okay with topping the ball. But as soon as you can. That's a great first start for my players. Another thing is to keep them very, very in a present state throughout their round until they get to their ball um, is huge for relaxation. If they can be really present and look at look at you know their surroundings and hear sounds and feel like the wind on themselves, they're really present, you can play some great golf in that 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 um, kind of area and, and if you go beyond that and you can get into a zone where you're so you're so you're so out of your realm that you, you don't have any thoughts like that um, and you're just basically going you're in a zone we've all been in it but i think if you get very very present and you're not thinking internally i think that you can get into a zone very very quick but i think if you're internal and thinking about you know So far in the future of what you have to do in this hole, I have to be, I have to make a birdie on this hole, or, you know, I'm going to shoot this certain number. Um, if you put those pressures, you're never going to get in a zone.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. I feel
1: like the biggest thing is getting, getting them to be okay with the outcomes, then getting them to really stay present and then getting them to either breathe or relax. But a lot of my players, I say, why are you breathing or why are you trying to do all these breathing things? Why don't you get to the root of the problem, which is really, you're not okay with the outcomes the truth
0: yeah no doubt i'm gonna fire some urban dictionary questions at you (laughs) because i'm always the dude on your instagram that's uh asking those questions i know there's plenty of people out there that have no idea what these things that you're talking about mean so what the heck is squando scooby i think i know what gucci
1: means which is kind of like good but i'm gonna let you i'm gonna let you you tell us (laughs) (laughs) they mean absolutely nothing but my players love it (laughs) they absolutely mean zero and it's the funniest thing ever because a lot of people say them and and they don't know what they mean either but it's absolutely hilarious so (laughs) but you know when you get the wet signs or the frogs it's just they just make me laugh you know and the one from a few weeks back the turtle or the turtleneck or something like that the, the turtle well you know the turtle one is the best because Everyone thinks that I like turtles and they, and and the reason is, is if you look on YouTube, I like turtles. There's a kid about, I don't know, 15 years ago that got on there and somebody interviewed the kid and said, uh, Jonathan, you look really like you're dressed up. And he goes, I like turtles. And it's, (laughs) it's got probably about a hundred million hits. So it's, it's, it's always made me laugh every time I see that kid say, I like turtles.
0: So it's a, it's, a, it's a really good thing that you clarified that because for Christmas or your next birthday, and they're kind of right around the same time, aren't they? I was actually going to send you a turtle. I was going to send you uh, a responsibility.
1: That would have been great. Well, you know, have I happy. have chickens in my house. I got, I've actually got bunnies. My wife My wife likes, you know, animals, that's for sure. Uh, you so, <laughs> A turtle would have went well. A turtle would have been real nice.
0: You've got to give us a social post on those other animals because I haven't seen those. But I think that um, what you create... Even though the words may not mean something, they begin to mean something and they mean, they represent a culture, an identity, a uniqueness that you bring to the world of golf, a uniqueness that you are, as I mentioned in the front end of the podcast here, so genuine and representing your own individuality and people uh, attach and associate to that. So don't stop being you, bro. I
1: I appreciate it. I just try, you know, golf is golf is a game and we we're trying to make it fun too. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's hard to beat you up, you know, and there's gotta be a little fun in it. And that's, that's what I try and bring to it too.
0: Yeah. Let's, let's speak, unpack for the listeners a little bit, your uh, professional knowledge, your professional development. And by first asking a question, what's something that you feel is uh, difficult to teach? What element of golf performance or the golf swing is difficult to teach and why? I'm I'm hoping you're not going to answer nothing.
1: <laughs> well, no, I mean I think golf golf is very very difficult to to deal with. I I don't think that people understand. You know, I think a lot of people th- go, "Oh, I know what George teaches." Until they come and watch me teach, they they really don't have a clue what I teach. And that doesn't mean it's good or bad. I think they just have an idea of what I teach. And and when people come and see me, they go, "Whoa, that's way different." I thought I thought you were just gonna do leg work. Or I thought you were gonna do this. And back to your point is. I think what they don't understand is the human relationships that I I can develop and how I can read people. I think that's what's hard for people to do when they teach. I think a lot of coaches don't understand the personalities between you and the player – as being the coach is the difficult part. And if you can read a player and understand they're frustrated and okay, let them just hit a couple balls, let it, let them zone out, let them just talk, let them do what they want for a while. Instead of beating them to death is hard to actually do for a new coach or for anyone is to read personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, and read their frustrations and read what they really want. And so what I feel like that I do well now that i always didn't do well is I ask them what they want instead of when they get to a lesson, a lot of player, a lot of coaches go, I already know what you're going to do. I know what I'm going to do. And, and, and a lot of times that, that I do do that. I run in, and I know what I'm going to do, but a lot of times it, it what's really helped me now is ask them what they really want. What do you want out of this lesson? but I think that's something that's really hard for for new coaches to understand there's a lot more than just teaching technique there is you know there's a lot to golf that I think that people really need to understand it's 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 not just golf swing it's personalities it's the mental side it's short game it's putting it's trouble shots. It's, it's a lot. And, and so there, it is hard to, to, to create a really good player. And a lot of times I'm just here to be a technician now, but I really like to develop a player. So it is hard to, for a lot of people to understand that there's a lot more to coaching than just, you know, technique. And yeah. so to answer your question, I know I rambled a little bit there, but I think that it's, what's difficult for me is is really you know making sure that i understand each player and what their needs are i think that that's the difficult part i think that i've got a lot better at it and i continue to can try and get better at it it's also scheduling when i schedule an hour i wish i had five hours with the player is really getting to each part of their game rather than than just going, okay, we're going to do golf swing together. And sometimes people just want golf swing. But I would like to say, okay, let's go spend 20 minutes on putting, 20 minutes on wedges, 20 minutes on ball striking. But, you know, in an hour, a lot of times you don't have time to go throughout their whole game.
0: Yeah, for sure. You, you just answered uh, the follow-up question, which is what's changed in your coaching as you are reflect back any number of years, one or five. You mentioned the relationship side and ability to recognize what the player uh, wants and needs and connecting on a very deep, profound level, which is one of the greatest differentiators of expert versus novice coaching. It's what uh, what we adults call a coaching superpower. But the follow-up that I have for that is where and when did that wisdom come to you?
1: You know, I, I learned a lot from being a coach on the tour how how different it is compared to teaching on the driving range. How so? Well, the first thing that I had, the first real PGA tour player I ever had was Sun Kang. Besides, you know, I, I had Web and Nationwide Tour players, but the real first PGA tour player was Sun Kang. And Sun Kang's really smart, probably one of the smartest guys I've ever worked with. He's been to a lot of different really good coaches. And he's a technician. He's he's he understands the golf swing very well. He understands what what's important and what he wants. And and that being said, you know he he's a technician. He can start messing with stuff and go play and play well. And sometimes he doesn't play well, but he knows how to shut it off. Then I started working with Danny Lee, and the first time I worked with Danny Lee, Sung's first warning to me was don't teach the way you teach me. <laughs> and I, <started> laughing. <laughs> I said, how's that? He's all, D- Danny won't like it. Well, <laughs> the first time I work with Danny, Danny fired me after like the first day he says, Oh, he's too technical. Um, <laughs> well the second, the second time he called me again, it was probably six months later fired me again, you know, and it was only a two, two day thing. It was like, you know, I don't like it. And then, the third time was about eight months ago, and I figured him out. I figured out what he what he liked. I figured out that I I can't throw any technique at him. I basically have to put sticks out in front of him, and, and have him avoid things. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that worked really well for him. Immediately, you know, he he played really well. I believe at the um, he took second at uh, what was it the uh, TPC. Mm-hmm. Um, he played very well there. And then he he's had a he's played pretty well since and he took a second in his last tournament he played in, which was about four weeks ago. but he's played well ever since, and I've kept it super simple. so I learned a lot from teaching Danny Lee. And then when I got to work with Padraig, it was a completely different thing. He didn't care anything about the golf swing. He basically just wanted speed. So that was fun for me. What was that specific
0: developmental arc like? Padraig came to you and he was swinging at 101 and you got him up to 125. I mean,
1: no, I, he wasn't at 101. He was, at, I, you know, I don't know exactly what he was at. He was pretty fast with his irons. His, his speed with this driver, he said, you know, I can get it up to 117, 118. And he says, I want to get it to one thirty. And I said, Why why do you want to get to one thirty? He says, If I get it to one thirty on the range, I can swing it at one twenty. And I said, Well, that's a good point. So that was his mission. And his mission is is he's he's always been trying to get speed because he's got such a good short game. I believe he was one of the short game leaders this year, that if he feels like that he can actually get the speed, he felt like he can still compete even, you know, in his late Mm forties. So I said, Okay, you know I'm not going to argue with a three-time major winner. I said, you know, I'll I'll get you more speed. So we got him up to 130, not consistently, but he was anywhere from 125 to 130 and you know, that's not his normal swing speed, so don't get me wrong on that, but when when he's trying to kill the ball, he can get it up there. And so it was a lot of finishing his turn, you know, getting into the ground differently, not sliding as much. Just different stuff and you know at first he was hitting it all over the planet and then you know he started you know trying to to detail it out you know his left arm was real high and and that created more speed for him so we got a little more depth in the arm and you know he's hitting the ball a lot better he's playing a lot better golf now and then you look at adam scott i got a chance to work with him and that was everybody's all Well, what are you going to do with adam and i was like well you know to be honest he's coming to me i didn't i didn't say anything you know but but he he was watching some of my stuff and he he just wanted to basically change his setup because his balance points were out in his toes and he backed away but it was a perfect matchup he played the ball off the heel and hit in the sweet spot and most people who had their armpits out in their toes and backed away would either throw their arms at it or swing change their swing direction or hit it on the toe Mm -hmm. but you know he had a good matchup i said you don't have to change anything but he wanted to create more rotation through the ball he wanted to change his setup, and so you know that's what that's what I gave him. And he wanted more rotation. He came up with the rotation, because if he rotated his hand, his hand path moved more out, and I didn't think that that was a great matchup unless he got a little more depth in his lead arm and the, the backswing. Mm-hmm. And and so that was fun, for me too, you know. And, and you know he went back to his his coach's brother-in-law and. I mean, we have still talk and, and he's, he's awesome. I mean, I, w- I, was, I was grateful to just get a chance to work with someone like him. Yeah, uh, But really fun.
0: Can I wind back it's something you said maybe six or seven minutes ago now? And, and I appreciate all the insight right there. And I want to pull on a couple more threads. But particularly, you were fortunate That Danny came back for a third time and gave you another opportunity to, uh, I guess, break the horse to use an analogy or or a a way to describe it, to figure him out, so to speak. Are there a set of questions maybe that you've learned to ask someone that helps you figure people out quicker now in the event that you may not get a second or even a third try at it again?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I've never had anybody, I've had people leave me. We all have. That's part of the business. Sure. But, but a lot of times it's for different reasons. Either I charge too much now or basically I don't live in the area and they need another coach. But usually it's, it's not one of those situations where someone leaves me because of a technical thing. Usually if someone does leave me, it's usually a miscommunication that, you know, I'm not understanding their needs. Mm -hmm. So I need to ask more questions. I need to make sure that these people are okay. And a lot of times I don't have time now. So I've got so many different students. And when I say different, it, it, it would be nice if I had a stable of five guys and I was on the PGA tour and that was my responsibility to me, that's easy. But when I have... I I can't, I gotta be honest. I probably have a thousand students, you know, and they don't come and they don't come weekly. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? They come, some come once a year, some come once a month, some come every three months, you know, and some come every week. So I have, you know, I'm working 10 to 12 hours a day with a different player every day. So it's, it's, it's different than being a tour coach. Do I like being a tour coach compared to being on the range? I love being on the range, to be honest. I think it's, it's a lot of fun. I get to deal with personalities, but being on the range with the tour players, easy, in my opinion, I think it is. I think that these guys are all so brilliant that you give them a little swing change and it's easy. The deal is, is that, you know, I'm home, I'm doing a membership site right now. Um, I haven't been on the tour for the whole last year, but it's 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 by choice. You know, when it, when I'm ready to go back out there, I like it. I, I'm ready for Matt Wolf to get out there, Akshay to get out there, and then I'll be there. But I still, the tour players that I work with... They they just send me swings all the time. And, you know, I got about five or six them that just send me swings all the time and and that's fine for now, but I I would like to get back out there after this this whole membership site's done. But besides what you were saying before, yeah, it took me some time to understand people's needs, especially the difference between being on tour and being on a driving range. They're a lot different.
0: Run on. Let's unpack speed, unpack the holy grail, which most players out there that would be probably listening to this or looking for if they're recreationally or even competitively, we'd all like that extra uh, 2, three, five, 10, uh, as much as we possibly can, uh, mile per hour uh, for, for distance. Um, are there uh, some underlying principles that you're looking at, particularly a hierarchy of things or stones that you're turning over when you're trying to decode what's deficient, holding someone back from uh, revealing or uncovering more distance.
1: Would you like me to tell you how I get some more distance mm-hmm. or were you asking if distance is a, creating a problem with like, you know, being consistent or. Definitely the first one. Okay. To be honest, the, you know, the speed thing came from, you know, not to meet Jamie Sedlowski. He's not my student. I've talked to Jamie. My first thing was watching Jamie Sedlowski create speed and how he did it. That was really kind of one of my things that I really copied, and so that was one thing that that I noticed. And if you just watch it, it's all there for you. But really, putting it into another player is 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 fun, <laughs> and it's it's kind of easy for me. I feel like I can get anybody you know, at least 10 miles per hour that hasn't been with me before. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? I feel like if someone's at 110, I'll get them to 120. If I feel like a guy's at a hundred, I'll get them to 110 real fast. And I think that it's, it's, it's quite easy. And and so the way I look at it is number one, I like a player to finish their turn. And that's all relative When I say finish a turn, let's say you only take it to left arm parallel I could take my left arm up to that position and not have any turn. And what do you think my body's going to want to do is stand up, pull my arms down, slide to get it back inside. Mm-hmm. But So there's always a, a certain amount of turn. So when I say finish your turn, if I was at left arm parallel, a good matchup for me would be my shoulders back about 60 degrees. But we're not going to get into detail of that. So when I say finish your turn relative to how far, big of a golf swing you want to take. But in a driver, if you're trying to create speed for a full swing – I would like to see a, a shoulder turn that's more than 90, 100, 120 if you can. If you're older, you can't. If you don't have the flexibility, you can't. But if you can get a full turn, I would love that. Now, when I say full turn, I want some extension. That means I want some mid-extension mid in the back, some thoracic extension. Uh, I want you to keep your left bend in as you, if you go into extension. I want that full range of motion. I like the right arm to actually go into abduction which means if you put your arms up like you're going to kick a field goal, someone says the field goal sign. I want the arms to spread all the way out. So um, that's abduction away from your midline, away from your sternum or your chest. The
0: elbow moving away from the All the way
1: out. Yeah, absolutely. All the way out, like a right angle. And then – I like some of my players to get their arm into, like, let's say the humerus bone, the tricep, bicep area, mm-hmm. the tricep parallel of the ground at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to be a little internal with the arm. Now, that doesn't mean I, I don't have my players, some players external up top, because some are, some are, are more internal. Um, I have a range that I like, but for pure speed, I like the arm to be lifted up. And, and so people go, well, why do you like that? I say, well, the longest hitters of all time have always been there. I don't see a lot of players pinching their arm which we'd call adduction, and I don't see them real narrow either. Some players are more narrow. I shouldn't say narrow. I should say really like their pressure points are down or they're into adduction is, is what I meant to say. So mm. I like the arm up and away, and that just gets the hands higher. I like the hands basically above the head. That would be a huge speed move, like a Rory, like old Nicholas, like Sam Snead, like all, a lot of the great longer hitters. I like the hands above the head. That'd be huge for speed. I like extension in the knees and some people go, well, do you like the right leg to extend more than the left? Yeah, obviously the the, the pelvis is going to tilt a little bit because the rights more than the left, but I, yes, I do like the right leg to extend not to lock out, but that's another big thing. And from there, once you've got that full range of motion, full turn arm up extension in the back straight. I I don't even mind the left heel off if you need more range of motion. Mm -hmm. Um, to the top. From there, if I was going to have somebody jump as high as they could behind a golf bag behind them, like, let's say there's a golf bag on my heels. And I got into that position. I said, get down in the ground and jump behind you. I would see a lot of people on their golf motion slide. And then I'd say, now jump behind you. And they couldn't jump. Okay. Yep. I'd see a lot of people suck their butt under them and try and squat and do it wrong. If I was going to actually do a prop. Squat where I went more into anterior pelvic tilt, which means my butt would go back towards that golf bag. I'd squat my legs and my my nose would be a right under my belt buckle, straight under me. I could move left or right real fast, and I could jump behind me the fastest. Okay, so that means that's the sweet spot of the ground. So anytime I see my upper body way back and my lower body really forward towards the target, you don't have the sweet spot of the ground. You're not leveraging the ground. So so. Does that mean those are great impact alignments? Does that mean that's great for hitting a driver? No, but that doesn't mean you can't extend and get back behind the ball after you have turned. So once you've dug in the ground, then you can use the ground. And I see a lot of people trying to squat down the back and jump off the ground right away. Now, that doesn't mean that's not powerful because I've seen people do that that have power, but that means you're not going to turn because once you squat and leave the ground, you're not going to turn. So what I like is a player to get down from that big position down where their nose is right, basically over their D. And from there, <laughs> if my right knee moved in, right, my right knee moved in real quick, my belt would collapse. My left side get higher, my right side get lower. Couldn't jump behind me. But if my legs were spread out wider, I would have got more into the ground. I would have turned more. And then from there, I can explode. From there, I can use the ground to push off. And then I can extend. I can my left leg. I can extend my pelvis. I can extend my spine and I can create a lot of speed. But I feel like if you push off your trail leg from there, you've already busted. There's nothing left. And that doesn't mean you can't get it more inside from there. Just means that you can't use the ground as well from that point on. So those are some of my really big things. And and how I do it from there is I have a lot of people do freezers and stretch and stretch and stretch and get up, up, up um, and finish it. Because a lot of times when you take it in motion, you get armsy or you don't finish your turn. And then from there, if you don't finish your turn and your arms rise, all you're going to want to do is push off trail and slide and get it back inside. Now you lost the sweet spot of the ground. So the biggest thing for me is finishing, getting back in and then using it. And and you can see that in my players, they all do it. It's not it's not a secret. Watch Jamie Sidlowski. It's just that I, I know how to create some stretch and the muscles. I definitely hold the left arm up a little longer. If you hold the left arm up a lo- little bit longer, you can get a stretch from your bicep to under your your chest. And that's a big stretch that you'll see in almost every big player. I mean, every every long driver, you don't see their left arm, you know, pull away from the chest real quick. And if you slide and you get that left arm under the chest, you're gonna see a player get stuck and they're gonna wanna pull their arms down. But if you, if you have enough depth and, and you do it proper and you get your arm under your chest that'll spring load right off your chest and your le- your arms will speed up even faster. So those are some of the things that I do for speed. And then I do a lot of lot of freezers and and have them do it from freezers as fast as they can. And then I do heavy to light clubs and stuff like that.
0: Many modes to create speed. There's many elements to it. And your command Absolutely. And that yeah. doesn't
1: mean you have good, you know, you have good numbers at the bottom. That means that you could have a face that's open and have all the all the best speed you could possibly have and add a lot of loft because your face is wide open and you're throwing all your angles at the bottom. It just Mm -hmm. means that you have speed. But now if you want your numbers to be optimal, that's a different story. Yeah, sure. Those are some things that you have to understand too, which you do. But I'm just saying a lot of players could still have speed and have, you know, the ball go very, very short because they're, they're, their numbers are not optimal. They're hitting down on it or they're adding loft or whatever it might be, or they're coming across it too much or too far from the inside, right? whatever it might be.
0: Your command of uh, the, the knowledge and also the effectiveness and application is absolutely clear. I'm sure that Uh, many of the listeners out there have got really good images because you use images really well to represent the point. And I'm sure at the end here, we're going to give you an opportunity to point them in a direction to create visuals that um, I guess attach to the description you've given us on the various socials and channels. But before we get there, one final question what does the ultimate mission map look like for, for George Gankus, for, for Gigi? And in your world,
1: what is, I guess, another way to ask it, in your world, what are you looking to achieve? Uh, great question. My first thing is, is that right now I want to help as many people as I can. That means that I, I have a membership program that's about ready to launch probably in March here. It's taken a lot longer than I thought. A lot of filming and it's taken up a lot of my time. So that's my first mission is to finish that. Once that's finished, once that's launched, that'll be really important in my life as far as, you know, helping other people. Once I've done that and that launches and that's, that's on its way, then I'm going to start certifying instructors, do probably a, um, a bunch of schools. And then after I do a bunch of schools, I'll probably do a lot of seminars and stuff like that and speaking and then, after that, you know I'm looking forward to being able to travel with some of my younger players that I've developed since they were kids. You know what i mean it, that's where it's going to be fun for me rather than somebody that's already on tour that I never you know i I get credit for for helping a guy that was already good before I met him <laughs> um i i i I want to be there when i when i've been with the kid since the start, and I've got a bunch of kids coming up that that are going to be doing that, and it, that's that's kind of my passion is is watching those guys. Don't don't get me wrong, I, I love teaching you know Sung and Danny and other guys that I have on tour. Absolutely, those guys are great. It's going to be fun though when I've got my boys that I've had that that are coming up, and, and it's going to be a different world too. These guys are going to be some world beaters that are smashing the ball, right. and it's going to be fun because you know other other players are going to want to most likely work where right now i'm probably a freak on tour because you know people just seeing some of my weird stuff i do um and i think that's probably one of the biggest things for me is a lot of people don't know what i'm about on on tour they probably think that i'm off the charts as far as doing some weird stuff
0: (laughs) well hopefully we've provided um a lot of clarification for those that listen i know there's a, a good bunch out there uh, on the PGA web and European tour that listen to this podcast. And I know that for a fact because they've told me as I'm walking the range and appreciate uh, the work that we're doing to, um, I guess, provide them some insights insights into the, the people and also the processes that underpin. I didn't know you even did it.
1: I think you're, I think you're great at it. I well, think well, thank that you, you ask great it. questions. I thank think you. you're awesome. Thank you. How about
0: a shout out for some of the up and comers? We know Matt, we know Akshay, um, maybe those out there don't know them. So um, give as many as you want a shout out. Uh, we, we'd love to keep our eye out on, on, on
1: you know, for these kids. you know, I just, I started working with um, a kid, Braden Thornberry. I think he's going to be mm-hmm. sensational. I mean, there's, there's a lot of kids in college. Uh, Cole Anderson's a, a kid that's Florida State. I think he's going to be a, a superstar. I, you know, I've got a guy, Parker McLaughlin. He's older. I think he's, I think that he's, he's going to surprise some people. And, mm-hmm. and the next year I'm excited to watch how he does. Uh, he's, he's only 24 years old. I can't wait to see, you know, what Johnny can do in the up and coming years. You know, there, there's a lot of guys out there that I mean, I have that i, I don 't even want to mention um, mm-hmm. that are coming up that they want me to keep private, but it's going to be fun well let's i'm excited
0: Respe- but let 's respect that privacy and uh, last thing where can people learn more about you and what you do is the socials
1: web etc well, I appreciate that uh, George Gankis golf is george golf a lot of people are pre uh, subscribing to the membership just getting a notification when we do launch. So if any of you are interested in that, feel free to do that. Also, George Gankus Golf on Instagram. I guess we're going to be on every social media, Facebook, Twitter, um, all of it. Search George Gankus yeah.
0: and you're sure to find you on any channel. <laughs> I <love laughs>
1: YouTube, it. I guess I, <laughs> you know, you my <laughs> old, my old one is GG swing tips, but that's, that's, that's not me anymore as I'm sure a lot of people do know, but George yeah. Gankus golf is my new one.
0: I think it's really important that, that uh, people know that. So just reiterate that point. Do not go to expecting that. GG
1: swing tips. There yeah. You, that's, you know what I'm going to get, I'm going to get that back. It's just, it's just a matter of time that I will get that back. That's That is, that's, you know, that's how I started it. It means a lot that, that, you know, I got that taken from me. I learned a lot, you know, I did, I didn't know that, um, you know, my domain name could be taken from me, um, but. I, I did.
0: <laughs> we will direct all traffic to the appropriate places until you give us the secondary call to action to direct it back to the uh, the former home. But until then, George, thanks for your time. And I'm sure you'll hear it through the socials that everyone appreciated all the amazing insights you provided us on this uh, episode of the Earn Your Edge podcast.
1: Thank you. I appreciate your awesome uh, host. And I'll be listening now. Excellent, mate. Thank you. All the best. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.